Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. What drives gender-based violence is gender inequality. So in the prevention space, it very much is working to put forward positive role models for children about uh, men and women and positive relationships. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You are on Australian Politics and you are with Catherine Murphy. And with me in the pod caves this week is Amanda Rishworth, who is uh, the Social Services Minister... I wanted to get Amanda onto the program this week uh, because I wanted to have a reasonably in-depth conversation about the National Plan to End Violence Against Women and Children, which she's been working up in concert with her state counterparts. So we're going to go there substantially, but I just want to start with a couple of opening general questions, Amanda, because you haven't been on the podcast, I think, since... Since you won the election? No, no, before the election. Before the election. Right. Yeah. I know. It's kind of extraordinary. So obviously social services, um, it's an enormous portfolio. It's enormously complicated. How are you finding it? Look, it has been a really steep learning curve, but it excellent journey to learn all the elements of the portfolio. So in the portfolio, we deal with obviously um, social security payments and all the the elements around that. But I also get to do women's safety, which is a really important area and one we need to make some strides on. I also get to do with um, disability that is not part of the NDIS. So how do we make our community more accessible to people with disability, more inclusive actually? And then I've also got families and communities. And so how do we build communities that support families, that have interventions that can lift people up? Um, So it is a a huge array of different programs and schemes, um, but they all have one thing in common, and that is to support people sometimes in their most difficult times. And, And for me, that presents so much opportunity to make a difference. And since you've uh, taken on the portfolio in government, since you've been briefed and you're rolling out all the sort of first stage of your policy responses, what's been the most surprising thing? That's a good question. So probably the most surprising thing was that um, I... Uh, that that just how many people's lives it touches. Mm. When I think about programs, it, it isn't just disadvantaged communities that this portfolio touches. It touches almost every single person's life around Australia. And so one of the surprising things that happened to me is that 
I was familiar with all the programs and a lot of the rules and the schemes just because of my work in my own electorate. I was going to say, um, which, constituent issues. Constituent yeah. issues, um, questions. I mean, there was one issue about um, that we're dealing with about volunteering and I was aware of that because I'd had a connection with my local volunteering organisation. So for me, the probably the surprising thing is social services. A lot of people might think it doesn't touch their lives lives when actually it has, I mean, I've described it as tentacles. I don't know if that's the right word, but it has tentacles right across Australia. And, you know, even things like a number of families um, get family tax benefit. That is something that uh, the Commonwealth provides and, you know, that is part of the portfolio. So it really does touch the lives, I think, of every corner of the country and is relevant to every Australian. So that's particularly, I, I hadn't really thought that through before I you got the portfolio. You hadn't thought how terrifying that would be. How much influence I have um, and how much impact, uh, but importantly, how much impact I can have. Yes, well, so, probably a more positive way to look absolutely. at it. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Absolutely. So let's get into the national plan now. And, uh, and I appreciate you spelling out uh, the mechanics of your portfolio, because obviously not everybody listening to the show is completely au fait with the, how government works or what various things happen in various portfolios. So uh, let's bring, at least in the opening, the same spirit to explaining the national plan, because there'll be people listening to the show who've never heard of it, have no idea what it is. Why don't you tell people what it is? Look, um, the national plan uh, is a document that is meant to outline, and it does outline, a strategy to address gendered-based violence in this country and violence against women and children for the next 10 years. Um, It's a document that both the Commonwealth Government and states and territories have all signed up to. And so it gives us a pathway that drives investment, a clear shared understanding of, of some of the drivers of gender-based violence and what some of the solutions are are going forward. So it really is a strategic document that calls out, uh, defines what we're talking about and then has a pathway to actually ending violence against women and children. And in that, uh, okay, so it's sort of, it's like it's a sort of helicopter plan that sort of sets out those national objectives. Uh, You know, how does it actually translate to individual incidences where someone is fleeing a situation of family violence, right? Like, and by that I mean explain the mechanics, right? The Commonwealth expends the funds, it trickles down through the states to frontline services in essence, but you can do this far better than me given that you're the one actually doing it. Yeah. So the plan, what it, it drives is where the investment should go. And some of that money uh, is Commonwealth money that is being spent, sometimes through the states and territories, sometimes directly to organisations. And it also directs where state and territories um, put their money. One of the things I would say is that there are four domains in this national plan. So often when we think about responding to domestic and family violence, it is about the response piece. What happens to women and children um, as they are fleeing domestic violence? And, And 
a significant part of the plan is dedicated to that, which drives resources to frontline services, to payments that can be made available to women and children fleeing domestic violence. But this plan is more than that because if we're constantly responding, and um, you would hear this in a number of social policy areas, if we're just responding to the crisis constantly, we never fix the problem. And so what the plan also outlines um, is um, what we need to do in prevention to stop uh, violence against women and children occurring, what we need to do in early intervention. So how do we stop it getting to the point where women are fleeing a, you know, huge hugely violent situation in their home. Obviously what we do with response, but also that path to healing and recovery. One of the things um, that victim survivors have clearly told us that what happens after you leave a violent uh, situation, what happens after that is really important to whether you further experience harm, what happens to your well-being, and what happens to the trajectory of your life. So those four areas are really covered and what they will do is make sure that investment, uh, whether it's other organisations or whether it is actually um through states and territory governments, but it's all pulling in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And there's there's to be a separate uh, plan for First Nations people, um, and that's a co-design process. Explain what that is. How does that work? Yeah, so under the national plan, we've then got to start drilling down into actions. So what, what are the tangible actions we can take? And we've already, as a government, taken a number of those tangible actions, like um, introducing legislative requirement for paid domestic and family violence leave, 10 days. But under the action plans, there will be a specific standalone Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander action plan that is being led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people themselves. Because what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have said is they want to have self-determination on the responses that work. They know uh, what works within their community and so they want to lead the design work and so we're partnering with them to work on what actions need to be taken. Already there's been some actions taken. I, I visited Alice Springs. Um, we responded to the desire of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations, expanding some of the programs that were working well. But this action plan underneath the national plan will drive in investment that on things that we know will work that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children have told us will work. Obviously, there's uh, all the stats tell us there's a really urgent problem in, um, in a lot of communities. And while obviously co-design and consultation is absolutely imperative for the reasons that you outline, it also slows down a process, it slows down a landing point. So, you're the minister. How do you balance those two imperatives of having been consultative and allowing communities to lead, but also getting the result? I think that's a really important question because action does need to be taken now. And there are some obvious things that communities have been called for that we are funding. Um, I've certainly been working very much uh, with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Advisory Council to give them the resources and support to do this work. But I have also indicated to them that we, we need to get on with this and we need to have action. So we are working very closely um, with them, but we also need to recognise, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children, they have 
an intersection of not only family and domestic violence, but they they have there is racism, there is systemic discrimination, and they are some of the things that we have to change as well. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, on this podcast, Kate Jenkins, who's uh, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, said to me in March of 2021, uh, we're at a we're at a turning point in this country when it comes to violence against women. She's worked in this field her entire professional life and that was her judgment, that we have finally reached a turning point. Um, What do you think? Well, the statistics um, about violent incidences and um, reports, particularly of sexual violence as well, have not changed. Um, One of the challenges, though, is with prevalence data. You cannot rely on prevalence data alone because one would hope that with more community support, community awareness, um, friends, family saying, I think you might be in this uh, violent situation, one would hope that people would reach out for help more. So you can't always rely on the prevalence data to get a good understanding if things are changing. So it's hard for me to judge. We still know the statistics are at pretty significant levels of what's being reported. So I'm not sure we have, in my view, turned the corner yet, but there are some green shoots. And I would say that community attitudes have changed significantly. Uh, Calling out sexist behaviour has improved. And so I do think that some of those sort of attitudes that lay the foundation for uh, that gender inequality and uh, that leads to the perpetration of violence against women um, has actually changed. And so I think there is a sense of hope. Um, I wouldn't want to be all dreary and say there isn't a sense of hope. There is a sense of hope. Um, But a lot more work does need to be done. Um, And it it is challenging if we we look at the area of consent, for example, still a lot of work to be done there. So, um, but the other thing I'm quite heartened about um, is young people are up for this conversation. Young people are up to talk about gender inequality. Young people are up to talk about consent and what respectful relationships look like. So I do, I am heartened by the fact that these are not as taboo subjects as they used to be. Mm, okay. Let Put your psychologist hat on for me for a minute, and I'm not saying that you need to sort of quote academic papers or anything. <laughs> it's all right. It's not a pop quiz. But I am just really interested, right? So I'm interested in what the literature tells us about what works and what doesn't at two levels because obviously, as you've referenced, it can't all just be mopping up at the other end. There's there's a prevention piece, so what, what works in a prevention piece, and then what works in the sense of a successful intervention because you mentioned, you know, that the, a critical part of the plan is that element of how do you turn your, how do you turn your life around mm-hmm. if yeah. you're a survivor of these situations, right, rather than sending yourself back into the familiar zone of harm either because... You've, you've got no other economic opportunities or options or because you re-traumatise yourself because it's familiar, right? So what works in, in a prevention sense and also in that sort of intervention frame? 
Well, in terms of a prevention, it actually goes back and and I haven't shied away from this, and that is um, what drives gender-based violence is gender inequality. So in the prevention space, it very much is working to put forward positive role models for children about uh, men and women and positive relationships. Um, One example of that is sort of the rigid masculinity, I think we'll call it, um, where boys will be boys, that's just what they do. Those types of conversations, role models, is actually so important in prevention um, that if you can get positive role models, um, that that is, that is critically important. The other element, so that's broadly about intervening early on and, and promoting positive male and, and female and role models. Um, the, the other part very much is with children who have been victim survivors themselves. The developmental trauma, if it isn't dealt with, um, can obviously lead to generational perpetration. And so it is a really big challenge um, that we do need to have programs that do heal children and do intervene, uh, particularly with boys and young men who have witnessed and been part of of, um, family and domestic violence. So they are a couple of areas where intervention and is really important for for prevention. But it, it does come back to that inequality and that that uh, perception that men are, you know, um, more powerful or, or have more power than women and girls. And so it is is getting to tackle some of those stereotypes are so important. And, and I, I have been in the past sort of criticised because, you know, why are you focusing on this when people are under real risk. And it's true. It's true. There are people that are in danger and and we want them to get the support that they need. But if we're going to turn this round, this is is the type of stuff the evidence says we must tackle. And is is, uh, this new plan and the emphasis on those elements, is that different from what has been pursued under the the predecessor plans? Yeah, it has absolutely been elevated um, in terms of its importance. Um, prevention was in there, but certainly the role that men uh, can play in terms of positive role models has been elevated. But the other bit that's been elevated that actually goes to your second question has been perpetrator accountability. And so when we talk about intervening. Yes, we need to look at how we support the victim survivor, but actually a very important part of the puzzle is how we change behaviour of the perpetrator. Because if we recognise that it's not just always one violent incident that happens uh, at the end, it is a lot of behaviours, not always physical, but emotional Uh, abuse, um, financial abuse. So is there a way we can actually get in early and intervene with the perpetrator in ways um, that changes their behaviour and gets them to take accountability? And that is the really big piece that if you can get that right, um, that's what really helps break the cycle of violence. And is that phenomenon, is that phenomenon well studied in in terms of, uh, because obviously, if, if you're dealing with a situation, you've, you've already pointed to intergenerational behaviour replication and trauma and all of those complexities, right? Uh, if, you've, if, that's, if that's the only world you've known, 
trying to sort of invent another world when you're an adult in a psychological sense. And this is why I'm asking you, mm. because mm. you clinically can answer this question for me. <laughs> I'm, non, I'm no. not practicing at the moment. No, I'm going no, but, to... But, you know, you've got this yeah. professional background, which yeah. I'm respecting in the conversation, yeah. so I'm actually really interested, yeah. right? Kate, what does the... Is it well studied? What does yeah. the literature tell us about recidivism yeah. in, you know, in these sorts of behaviours? Yeah, I mean, the programs themselves, there are some really good programs. There's some that need to be improved. So it's got to make sure. But the, the, the there is still more evidence that is needed to be collected in what works. And I'm very keen to see Australia contribute to that evidence base. Um, very keen. I mentioned in my speech today that I would like to see um, a perpetrator study being done, not just on prevalence, there is some information about prevalence, but about what works, what helps to change that behaviour. Um, so I think while there is some evidence of what those programs can look like, I think more evidence needs to be collected. Um, and so I, I think there's an opportunity for us as a country to do that work and actually get a much better understanding so that we know that the interventions, um, now that's not to say we should stop some of the interventions because there are elements that have demonstrated just in the in in the data that they've collected work, but to really understand the ingredients of what facilitates change, um, you know, always empathy is part of this, and that is not always easy, um, but it can be done. So there's work around how you best support people have empathy, and often. Um, violence occurs when you don't have empathy for the other person. So there's some ingredients in there, but more work definitely needs to be done. But you referenced this a moment ago. It's sort of fiscally speaking, it's a bit of zero sum, all of it, isn't it? I mean, you've got a finite funding window. I mean, we can't sadly devote every single taxpayer's dollars to this horrendous problem. Um, so you've got to make judgments within your fiscal envelope, right? Like how much... How much do you study the phenomenon? How much do you, you know, make sure that crisis centres have got enough money to stay open, you know, et cetera, et cetera? How do you weigh those judgments? Look, it's a, it's, it's a really um, difficult circumstance because um, local frontline services are always cr crying out for more help. So it is about trying to make sure that we are allocating resources in, in all of those four domains. And that's why the National Plan is so important because it says it really uses research to say you need to address all four plans, uh, four parts of the plan. So it's a, it's a check. It's, you know, check and balance to say, look, we do need uh, to put resources into these sorts of things if we're going to make a difference because otherwise it's going to keep going around. One of the good things about this plan is that it isn't just the Commonwealth coming down on top of the states and territories. States and territories invest significant resources in this area too. And what this plan does is is quite rightly clearly define roles and responsibilities, which is really important because you know, I know the the sort of reaction is often we'll just go and fund this and, and it's a duplication of something being done in the states and territories. By having states and territories sign up to this plan, sign up to the action plans, it does know that our resources are all pulling in the same direction. So if the Commonwealth is putting more into prevention and because there's a need for a national campaign on awareness, 
that allows the states and territories to make sure their resources are going in other places and we're not duplicating the investment because that that's what can happen from time to time. There's sort of this big response need and everyone throws money at it. But if it's not done in a coordinate or indeed a consistent way, if the awareness piece isn't consistent language, um, then we've got a problem. So that's why the work that the Attorney General is doing on coercive control as well is really important. A national definition so that we understand it, some national principles around coercive control so that you know, we're all talking about coercive control. What does it actually mean and how do we best respond um, so that we're all pulling in the same direction? But it's sort of uh, and it's interesting, you know, that, that you're right in to point to, you know, work that colleagues do elsewhere, right, in the States, obviously, Mark Dreyfus's AG looking at those, you know, that, that issue specifically, but like, Sort of again, trying to try, and I don't want to be dolly down either in this conversation. But it's sort of, but it sort of does my head in, right? It's such, it's such a profound problem, and there are so many different contributory elements to it that it is sort of fixing it is beyond the scope of a single social services minister, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you know, it's it, sort of like. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, so, <laughs> well, you know, do you wake up and just feel futile most days? No, that's not what I mean, but it's, you absolutely. know what I mean. Well, you, absolutely. And we, women safety ministers sat around the room and agreed to this plan, but uh, many of them had to take it through their cabinets and we took it through our cabinet um, to get the buy-in of all ministers around the table. And that's why I think the plan's been really important um, as a the real underlying driver being so clearly spelled out that gender inequality is a big driver. So the investment is about trying to tackle a lot of these areas and put driving investment where it needs to go. But a whole of government commitment to gender inequality, both at the state and the federal level of addressing it, does feel that addressing this in the long term is not as insurmountable as it may seem. Yeah, and I understand why, I understand what you're saying there, that it's sort of like uh, part of the sort of insurmountability, if that's even a word, sort of previously has been, well, do we all have the same, you know, sort of values response to Mm. this, right? But there's also practical things. I mean, it's sort of like then you, you get as you sort of drill down further and further, you get into, you know, you need different responses with policing. You need different responses. Oh, well, you, you basically need to look very closely at the family court, which is politically diabolical for any government. I mean, we've seen that whole debate play out for the best part of 20 years. But, you know, that's sort of one of the accelerators sitting behind a number of these scenarios that we're talking about, right? You know, I, I agree with you that this sort of sea change is getting everybody to see it through the same lens, but there's still so many barriers to sort of dealing with this substantively. So how do you yeah. how do you bulldoze the barriers? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. There, I'm not going to pretend there's any easy answers. What I would say is... Um, in this national plan, we we clearly call out some of the system barriers. We haven't shied away from the family court as, as a barrier. Now, there's no magical fix-all that's going to fix it immediately, but, but the fact that we've identified 
that in the plan. We've identified housing. We've identified um, the social security system. We've actually been honest about some of the barriers, the system barriers of getting through a system. We have um, talked about law enforcement being better equipped um, to deal with these things. I mean, when the statistic is 5,000 call-outs to police a week, now they need to be well-trained in that when they're dealing with with so much. So I think we've been honest uh, about the broader problems, but going to your questions, well, how do you fix all of this, well, you've got to to at least have a goal and take steps, chip away at actually making a difference in these things. And I think by being honest that it's not just this individual problem, there's these other systems that do interact with it. There's no overnight solution, but recognising that I think is a really important first start. Mm, Well, it's it's certainly better than the alternative. That that is is, is true. Well, well, they haven't always been fully recognised in a lot of these. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm paying the point. It's, mm. It is more than it's more than an aspiration. It is, it is actually: are we looking at the problem in the same way, and are we yeah. working in the same direction in order to fix it? So it's not nothing, but it's not it's not all the things either. No, it's not all the things either. But there have been, for example, steps uh, from the Commonwealth's perspective in this budget around police training uh, and law enforcement training and legal profession training. Once we get that, we've settled on the principles of coercive control. So, so there is Commonwealth money that works in with the state and territories around that. So, I think you shouldn't underestimate when it is in lights that there isn't, you know, steps towards doing that. Will will the whole police force be adequately trained next year? Probably not. You know, let's be honest about that. Probably not in every circumstance. But it is about um, it is about directing investment, and we've seen that, as I said, in this this budget. Um, there has been, for example, an elevation of sexual violence in this plan because it is gendered na- in nature. What's that driven? That has driven more investment into working women's centres to so that there's somewhere to go to talk about sexual harassment, sexual violence in the workplace. So it does drive as you work towards these things. It does drive investment. Yes. It doesn't get fixed overnight, but it is all, all about pulling in the same direction. Yeah, but I mean, I'm sort of only I'm not I'm not really suggesting to you that it's that it can be yeah fixed overnight. That's not really the point. Although your plan does it not has this sort of ambition to kind of eradicate in a generation, right? Yeah. Yep. <sighs> Yep, it does, it does. she says, on Uh, this side of the road. Yeah, no, it it does set a a pretty ambitious plan and I have said it's pretty ambitious. But, I mean, the one thing I would um, say to people is we don't say... Uh, yes, there's going to be road crashes, and uh, uh, we 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 were okay with that. We, we're fine with that. We we don't mind a few injuries, a few deaths on our road. I mean, all states and territories take a zero yeah. road toll approach. Um, and what we're saying is, we're not saying we're going to do that tomorrow. Um, we've given ourselves a generation, but I think it really is a line in the sand because I, I think about. My children, and I think children born today and my children's children, I mean, we just 
can't have them dealing with this issue for generations to come. We need to say we've got to take responsibility now and that's what this is doing. Mm. And just quickly, uh, I, I will just ask you about um, the regulation of, of uh, gambling because I wanted to focus the conversation predominantly on the plan, but I know there is a lot of community interest about this and there has been a development this week where you, you've uh, put forward some more I would say, realistic um, <laughs> taglines about... Um, anyway, just uh, why don't you tell people what's what's happened and then I've got a question for you. Yeah, look, um, what um, we've announced or we've notified online wagering companies is that from March next year they are required to put uh, proper taglines that actually are embedded in research that have shown uh, that uh, get problem gamblers to think twice before they place a bet. So instead of the gambling responsibly tagline, which, you know, quite frankly, I think we've all become very uh, immune to, um, there will be taglines like you win some, you lose more. There's seven different taglines that are online wagering companies will have to rotate because one of the other pieces of evidence shows that they can, if the message becomes stale, um, then uh, people don't pay attention. So there'll be a requirement to rotate these over a 12-month period. Um, and in addition to that, in longer ads, there has to be a call for action. So what 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 can you do? So these are new regulations that have been agreed to with the states and territories. And I would like to really acknowledge there is a regulatory framework that doesn't give the Commonwealth power. It doesn't really give the states and territories power. So it does require really careful cooperation. And that has occurred. And so we've sent notification that online wagering companies will have to implement this. This is actually part of a, a broader suite of reforms signed up to with the states and territories, the National Consumer Framework. And I'm working towards getting the last bits of that done. Once they've been implemented, there is a question about what comes next. And I know that my state and territory colleagues are very keen and I'm very keen to meet and start discussing how the framework has been implemented and what can we do next to minimise that harm of online gambling. I'll just consider this an audience question because I <laughs> expressed some views about this uh, this change on social media this week, you know, just sort of like, oh, thank God that's finally happened. And I got hit with a volley of responses from, uh, you know, readers and users with people saying, well, why don't we just ban the ads? Look, um, that that is an issue that the House of Representatives Standing Committee is actually looking into. They're looking at a, a range of um, measures um, that, that uh, could govern online gambling, online waging, about looking at problem gambling. I mean, for me, what is most important to me, and I'll work with my state and territory colleagues on that, is what the evidence shows us minimises harm to people. Um, so what we know is there's some people that like a punt, and it's not not for me, but some people do like a punt, um, and it doesn't cause them any harm. But uh, we know that uh, Australia has one of the highest per capita losses of online um, wagering, and so we do need to um, actually make sure that we're minimising harm. So I want to work in a, a really constructive way about what will minimise harm um, for online gamblers and prioritise those measures. We know that these taglines make a difference. They 
They uh, research with over 8,000 participants. Um, they are embedded in two years' worth of research. Um, they, they actually um, are evidence-based. And so for me, that was why that that is a priority. But over time, you know, I'll work with my state and, co- state and territory colleagues about how we do minimise harm. At the same time, for those people that want to have a have a punt, you know, it's obviously uh, something they can do, but we, that it's those people that are uh, their losses they actually are not able to manage that we need to support. Yeah, so so maybe. Well, well it's not for me. It's not for me. It's, it's it, there is there is a process of of what the states and territories want to make as their next priority. Some of the other things that have been implemented recently have actually been activity statements. So often people lose track of how much they've won and lost um, because it's on their credit card and they, they're not paying attention. Um, now uh, online wagering companies have to put up activity statements every month so people understand and it's in red whether they've won or lost. Oh, and they send them, do they, to you? They users? do. They send them to your email when you register um, and they pop up uh, well, they, they're available when you log on. Right. Um, so that's a really important reminder of in the last month, what's happened, how much have you lost? So um, because people do lose track. The other uh, thing we're looking to implement um, over the next uh, few months is actually, because uh, uh, at the moment, if you go to the pokies, you can self-exclude yourself um, from, from land-based gambling. Um, that will be introduced for online wagering sometime in the coming months so that you'll be off to exclude yourself from o- online wagering. Um, and so that self-exclusion plays a role. So all of these, are, none of these are silver bottles, but they all play a role. So um, this is certainly not the only measure that we'll, we'll, we've taken, but um, we'll keep working, like I said, with the states and territory colleagues on what actually makes a difference. Okay. Oh, and anyway, hopefully that's an answer for a number of people who um, absolutely came at me this week, and I imagine came at you. I mean, I have both. to say, just, you know, just guessing. I, I, I do understand that. You know, I certainly find the ads annoying too. Um, so I can understand the the frustration that people have. Yeah. Well, it, it seems to be. There seems to be considerable frustration with it out yeah, there. Anyway, absolutely. so paying that. Remember, the house always wins, guys. Thank you for your time, Amanda. I appreciate it. It's been a busy week uh, and I appreciate you giving the time to the listeners. Thank you, you guys, for listening. Thank you to Alison Chan, who's producing this week. Thank you to Molly Glassie, who's the EP, and we will be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.